Good morning. I want to share this moment with my family. We're going to read. It's 1 John 4, 7 to 20. Dear friends, we should love each other because love comes from God. The person who loves has become God's child and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love to us. He sent his only son into the world to give us life through him. True love is God's love for us, not our love for God. God sent his son to be the way to take away our sins. That is how much God loved us, dear friends. So we almost, sorry, so we also must love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us. If we love each other, God's love has reached its goal. It is made perfect in us. We know, we know that um, we live in God and God lives in us. We know this because God gave us his spirit. We have seen that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That is what we teach. If someone says, I believe in that Jesus is the Son of God, then God lives in him and he lives in God. And so we know the, the love that God has for us and we the trust that love. Hi, it's us again. Okay, we're reading from John fifteen nine to seventeen. It starts. I loved you as the Father loved me. Now remain in my love. I have obeyed my Father's commands. And I remain in his love. In the same way, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. I have told you these things so that you can have the same joy I have. I want your joy to be the fullest joy. This is my command. Love each other as I have loved you. The greatest love a person can show is to die for his friends. You are my friend if you do what I command you. You. I don't call you a servant now. A servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I know I call you friend because I have made you know everything what I hear from the Father. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I give you this work to go and produce fruits. I want you to go produce fruits that will last then the father will give you anything you ask for in my name and this is my command love each other amen check check how many of you found the four loves one is misspelled i'm sorry to say I think the Greek language actually had more words than four for love, but four are well known. When Jesus said we ought to love one another or that we ought to love our enemy as we love our 
or even love our enemies, he was referring to a love known as agape, agape. It refers to a love that extends beyond self, beyond family, beyond friendship. It is a love that has with it an ethic and an attitude in terms of the way we care for and love the world around us. It is perhaps the most universal of the Greek loves. Secondly, we have what might be called phileo, and that's the misspelling. P-H-I-L-E-O is how that should be rendered. So the uh, all the judges agree, dole then no longer qualifies. Um, but phileo is brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia develops its first portion of its, its word is philos, philo, brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. Rather poignant film by the same title on that, phileo. The third type of love hits a little bit closer to home, and it refers to that kind of love we might have within family. And it's an odd-sounding word in English, but storge, storge, S-T-O-R-G-E. And then there's the love that is a passionate, romantic, erotic kind of love, the word from which we develop our word erotic. It's eros, Romantic love. And I couldn't help but throw in here a a line from a a British um, romantic period uh, type uh, thing about uh, where the suitor says, allow me to tell you how ardently and passionately I love and admire you. So we do have the word ardent there and admire over here. And those two might be connected with that kind of love. Love is at the core of the gospel. It's at the core of the character of God. Love is perhaps one of the most obvious things to talk about, and yet it's one of the things we struggle with most despite its universality. When I say that, I don't mean that we necessarily have difficulties loving those that we love most. But we do struggle on every level, most of us. We struggle with loving ourselves at times. We struggle with knowing how to love certain of our family members. You can't get away from them. I guess in today's world, you can divorce a mom or a dad. You can uh, probably uh, no longer claim a sibling as your own. But that sort of thing doesn't happen much. We're pretty much stuck with our families. And that's mostly a good thing, but in some cases that's really difficult. And then there is uh, society at large, and I think just on a basis of personality struggles alone, we can find people that we don't necessarily feel warm fuzzies for right away. You certainly know what I mean there. And the Bible isn't commanding you to feel warm fuzzies. It's communicating to you that God's love transcends your lack of feeling about warm fuzzies and instructs us on how we ought to treat one another. And then there's that choice we make to love even those who hate us. 
And that is extremely difficult to do. That is not something, in fact, that we naturally can do. That is only possible as an extension of God's love for that person. It's co-opting, if you will, the love that God directs our ways and redirecting it toward people that we, we have no affinity for, no caring, no feeling for. God's love is pervasive. And to the extent that we participate in the life of God, we participate in that love. But it is a challenge. And so even though it's a very ordinary, common statement, even though there, if you look up love in a, a Bible um, concordance, it'll be one of the most prolific words. I can't help but feel at some level, and I'm not the author of the book, but I can't help but feel at some level that that's intentional. That it's a big topic because it's a difficult one at some level for us. You see, we once were face-to-face with God. We once had that kind of intimacy, that kind of connection. But having sinned, having rebelled against the God who loved us, having said we have our own ideas about how things ought to be in the order of the universe, and being born to that rebellion, we find it a challenge even as we accept Christ, to always live the love we have been called to. And I don't think that uh, point requires any special proof, does it? It's a universal sort of experience. Well, as is my habit, I like to go through some of the texts that we've looked at, and I want to start in the Gospel of John today. And I don't know how far we'll get, but let's turn to that passage that was read. I, again, am am no world-class biblical expert by any stretch. But in my experience, I would say John 15, 16, and 17 are some of the most difficult to comprehend, wonderful, and challenging passages of Scripture. The Gospel of John puts forth the relationship between God and humankind, Father and Son and Spirit, in such a profound way, all intertwined in love, that it makes it just uh, unbelievably difficult for me to get my head around. Maybe you are far more gifted in this way than I. But I struggle with these passages because they are so foreign to my human experience. And yet God speaks this love into human experience firsthand. God speaks this love in gospel. He speaks this love as good news. And he's teaching us something really amazing. As most of you know uh, from the subtitle here, we're talking about, in context, the teaching on vine and branches. And Jesus uses the growing of grapes or the vine as an analogy, starting with being the vine and who the gardener is, Jesus being the vine, the Father being the gardener, and we being the fruits. And the way in which the Father prunes the vineyard, prunes the vine in order to produce greater productivity. And the way in which we come to understand that the only form of human productivity, spiritually speaking, is to be grafted into the vine. That is to say, to be in Christ. 
Now that sounds incredibly exclusive, and I don't necessarily mean it in the most exclusive sense of the word. And what do I mean by that? What am I talking about there? What I'm talking about is the universality of God's desire to save people. What I'm talking about there is the way in which God is greater than the Christian version of the gospel. What I'm saying there is that Jews before Christians had a way to be grafted into this vine, to be part of this vine. And that God has children everywhere, whether they know that they, whether they follow this particular nomenclature, this particular uh, labeling or not. So I'm not trying to be particular and exclusive in this sense, but because we're Christians, we can take it that way. We can understand it that way for ourselves. For us, the path to love, the path to understanding, the path to Christian productivity, that is to say fruits in all of their forms, whether we're talking about fruits that are benefit to us or fruits that are for the gospel, that is to say other people who've come to believe, Whatever kind of fruit we're talking about, it is the direct result of being part of the vine. Nothing grows outside the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and if you want to be productive, you need to be in me. That's it. Now I'm talking about the fruits of of even the Spirit, joy, peace, and so forth. Now it gets down to verse 9, and he explains this mystery a little more deeply. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Father to Son, Son to us. Now remain in my love, we, us, remain in the love of the Son. And if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's command and remain in his love. So there's like a third line there. Jesus has remained in his Father's love by keeping the commands, and so he commands us to keep the commands to stay in his love. Now, we're not talking about just the Ten Commandments here. We're not talking about some sort of forensic version of doing the right thing. We're not talking about becoming some sort of repressive judgmental group in which we lay down a law and expect everybody to toe a line. We're talking about an internalization of the law. There is only one, and it has two parts, and it's supreme, and it's comprehensive, and it's absolutely, from a human perspective, completely and utterly unattainable. Jesus is asking you to do the impossible. He's asking you to love God supremely and your neighbor as yourself. Good luck. And that's why I say you all have a problem at some level with one of these forms of love. Is that clear? Great. Now what do we do, Jesus? Yes, my wife points out, okay, good, you got that across, now what? (laughs) Oh, thank goodness for the gospel. So there's this sort of daisy chain thing going here 
in which our connectedness to Christ and participation in his life is connection to the Father who's the source of all of this love. So as the Father has loved the Son, so the Son has loved us. If we now remain in his love, that's the command. If you keep my commands, that is to say, love God supremely and your neighbor as yourself, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's command who commanded the same thing, by the way, and remain in his love. And I've told you this so that your joy, my joy, may be in you and your joy may be complete. And the word there for complete is perfect. That's what it is. You've heard the text, be ye perfect as your father therefore in heaven is perfect. And you think, oh my goodness, I am going to hell. I'm not going to pass go. I'm not going to collect $200. I am going straight there. And really, that's not the best translation of the Greek. You can be complete in the Son and in the love of the Son as He is complete in His Father. And the joy that we experience in the love of God makes us complete. That's what this text is saying. That's a wonderful, new, well, maybe not new. I'm sure there are others who teach this way, but uh, uh, for me anyway, a, a, a broader way of looking at this whole piece. It's hopeful, isn't it? It helps me think that perhaps there's some way outside of myself with some assistance here that I can solve this dilemma I find myself in of not being able to love in the way that I've been told to love. Because it isn't just about the command. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And what does that look like? Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because servants don't know their master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I've learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever ask you, you ask in my father's name, the father will, excuse me, very important mistake there, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. There's that daisy chain again. This is my command, love each other. Now this would, again, not be profound teaching. It would be very obvious teaching, except that we have such difficulty with this. Except that we have such a struggle with this. But as difficult as this sort of daisy chaining pattern is to connect, what we're going to see... If you, if you take the time to read 16 and 17, what you'll see is a unity that will blow your mind. A unity God is calling us to that transcends Trinity and the relationship of Father and Son and extends to humankind in Christ. It's a profound thing. But here in John 15, we're connected in this love and in loving one another. Remember in Matthew 6, where Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Beatitudes, and he teaches the disciples to pray. 
And the little phrase comes up, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, or forgive us our debtors as we forgive those... Uh, I'm, yeah, forgive us our debts as we forgive the, our debtors. I think I misspoke there. So that's, that's the idea as that unfolds. And you see very quickly what's predicated one upon the other. God's forgiveness comes to us as a gift, and it's unconditional in the sense that he wishes to grant it. But it's conditional in the sense that in forgiveness we are not entitled to hold grudge. Do you catch that? In order to be released, we must also release. So the freedom extends beyond ourselves. When you forgive somebody, even someone who is a complete stranger, an unbeliever, when you forgive somebody who has hurt or wronged you and you let that go, you have just passed on to that person the forgiveness of Christ and the love of God. You have just passed it on. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to be in him that his love might flow not only to us to make our joy complete, but to everyone around us that we might release others to experience his joy, that their joy also might be complete. Because the shocking thing that stands in the face of our egotism and our our, uh, egocentricity is that God's love is not just about us. Isn't that a shock? Oh, come on. How inconvenient is it that he loves everybody and how tasteless as well? Yeah, you can chuckle at that. I know you've thought it, but it's true. But it's really not, is it? Because it's that cycle, it's that flow of love that encompasses even me, even you. And if we get past ourselves for a moment, we realize that we become part of something connected in ways that transmit the grace, healing, hope, love, goodness, and peace of God to a world around us. In as difficult and simultaneously simple an act of letting go. And when our hands are open, proverbially speaking, we are free to what? Receive. We're free to receive. Turn to First John 4. First John 3 and 4 are all about love. Same author, same incredible insight. And to some extent, some of the same daisy chaining. Verse 28 of chapter 2, 1 John 2. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. He's come the first time. He's asked us to live out his love. If we continue in that love, then there's nothing to be ashamed of when he returns. For if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. 
Okay. But now we come back to that temptation to see this as a behavioral request. How likely is it that you can do everything right? You don't know? I love you, but I can tell you from knowing you as well as I do, not likely. Not likely. No. We're born of him, we choose to be in him. We allow him to fill us with his grace and love. We let go of the hurts and wrongs perpetrated against us. We choose to see others in light of the way Christ has seen us. And in this way, we perpetuate and participate in this love and grace, passing it directly on to another and bringing no shame upon ourselves. But that does not refer to a personal perfection in that journey. So don't get discouraged with yourselves. There was a teacher long ago, clear back in the 70s, long ago, who used to say, if you drop the soap, are you out of the shower? Some of you may remember that. I thought that was brilliant because I've dropped the soap a time or two. And the answer is obvious, of course not. I'm not out of the shower. I simply need to pick up the soap and continue bathing. And that's how it is with our lives. Until you choose to step out of the water, the flowing water of his grace and love, all you need to do is pick up the soap and keep bathing. You're going to drop it. It's slippery after all. So don't worry about that. You're never going to beat that. That is with you until you have been transformed and changed in the twinkling of an eye. Just be sure you're not caught holding it against somebody else when they drop the soap. Let it go, knowing that you have dropped the soap and that the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God flows through you, making your joy complete. How about that, huh? Unhappiest people in the world are the people who continue on in a course looking for an answer to a wrong that's been committed them against them years ago. Have you noticed that? Perpetually, perpetually, perpetually holding on to a grievance that's been committed against them and seeking to, to call somebody out on that. Have you ever observed that? Like on Oprah or, I don't know, one of these shows? They're unhappy people. Unhappy now, this is not to speak of um, never pursuing justice when it's called for. That's not what I'm talking about. This isn't to say that when we've been badly wronged that we ought not to seek some kind of restoration. And there are passages in the Bible that even speak of restitution on the other side of things. Our passage in Exodus spoke of God's grace and long-suffering, but he says he will, in fact, take care of sin and the sinner. 
A lot of people wonder what that under the third and fourth generation means. And quite simply, it means that very often we suffer generationally the effects of sin. How often is it that a child with a short temper does not have a parent who has a short temper? Have you noticed that? It's virtually congenital. And so it goes. Chapter 3 talks about the great love of God in verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. And he goes on talking about this love right on through the end of the chapter, 11 through 20 per, uh, 24 particularly. Now we come back to 4.7, and we're reminded again of God's love. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. That is familiar territory, isn't it? Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That's the answer. God loved. God sent. We live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Let me rephrase that one now. His love is perfected in us. That simple act of passing it along, that simple act of loving is a perpetuation of what God calls us to and a demonstration that indeed we're his. C.S. Lewis says it brilliantly, and I'm not quoting him. I'm giving you the gist or the thought. What he really talks about is the way in which no really, truly good or noble thing, no act of love or generosity can really come from evil or Satan. And conversely, no truly evil thing can ever really come from God. When we participate in the life of love, we participate in the life of God himself. And as we practice that love beyond self, beyond our romantic and erotic attachments, our familiar base, familial base, beyond family itself, a brotherly, sisterly kind of love, beyond friendship and love of specific society, to a universal kind of love. Now we're, now we're talking. The pervasive and total love of God. Uh, um, the completely encompassing love.
Verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is Son of God, God lives in them and they in God, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And there's more of that daisy chaining between God and Christ and us, connecting us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us or perfect among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world that we are in fact like Jesus. For there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who is fearful or fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If we say late, we love God, yet hate a brother or sister, we're liars. If we do not love a fellow believer whom we've seen, we cannot love God whom we've not seen. And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love one another. Repetitive? Yes. Obvious? In some ways, yes. Challenging? This is at the heart of it, friends. This is the very heart of it. Today, I'm not an altar call kind of guy. But today, I want to invite you to consider something. I want you to consider making a deliberate choice from moving out of the house of fear and moving into God's house of love. It's a choice. It's a very straightforward choice. God, I'm tired of a life of fear, of separation, of anxiety. I choose instead to be made perfect in the love of Christ who was loved and sent by you. I choose instead to be a vehicle by which your love passes to those around me. And instead of fearing, I will love. That is the choice. And it won't be your power, and it won't be your grace. It'll be the Father's. And when Christ comes again, whatever else happens in this world, if you have been living the love of the Father through the Son, if you've loved one another, He'll know who you are. There'll be no mistaking it. And we go back to 1 John 3 and that wonderful phrase. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that my dear friends, is exactly what we are. Let us respond to the grace of God this morning as the deacons collect our offering.
And so now, Lord, may your love be made complete in us as we love one another. Amen. Thank you.